podcast from Fangraphs presented by our Patreon supporters. I'm Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, not joined by Jeff Sullivan of Fangraphs today. Jeff is sick. He was losing his voice on our last episode and he has now entirely lost his voice. His immune system is weakened by working from home and he was in contact with other human beings this weekend and it did not go well for him. So he'll be back later in the week. But filling in for Jeff, I am happy to be joined by Lindsay Adler, who covers both the Mets and the Yankees for The Athletic. Hey, Lindsay. Hey, Ben. So later in this episode, we're going to have a guest. We're going to talk to Jeff Heckelman, who is a former MLB PR guy. He is going to tell us why it is or isn't MLB's fault that Mike Trout isn't more famous, which is a debate that we hear all the time, that it's MLB's fault, that they're not doing a good job of marketing their stars. Maybe, but it's debatable, and Jeff will tell us why. But this is not terrible timing for Jeff to be sick if he had to get sick at some point because I wanted to talk to you anyway because I'm kind of fascinated by the career change that you have made this year. And for people who don't know you, you were at BuzzFeed News and then you were at Deadspin and now you are at The Athletic. So you are basically a beat writer for two teams at the same time. And so whenever I make one of my visits to a clubhouse in New York, I see you. I saw you at Yankee Stadium earlier this year. I saw you at Citi Field this past weekend. Now you're in Philly because the Yankees are there. So how did you make this transition? What prompted you to? Was it purely just kind of economic considerations or worries about Univision or Gizmodo or whatever? (laughs) Or did it have to do with your actually wanting to do this type of work rather than just be at home and lead a a hermit's existence like me and Jeff? (laughs) I think The best thing about Deadspin for me was that I was pushed and challenged to do all sorts of different things. I got to, you know, write personally. I got to do straightforward news stuff. I got to do all sorts of different things. And at the end of the day, I realized that really all I wanted to do was something with like a bedrock of reporting. And Mm. that's what makes me feel most secure personally and in my career. And so when The Athletic reached out to me about this, I found it really intriguing because, of course, one of the limitations at Deadspin is not really having access to teams. Mm-hmm. And that was always kind of kind of limiting. And so I felt that to be able to continue to build a career in this forever contracting industry, it was really a necessary step. And, you know, I don't know that I would have no, I know I would have been an awful fit at a at a newspaper or something like something traditional. So going somewhere where the coverage is very features based, I think was the only way I could make this work. So I think I I really yeah. just got lucky. Yeah. 
I mean, putting myself in your place, it seems like a really intimidating transition. I've been going into clubhouses and I've been a member of the Baseball Writers Association for several years now, but I wouldn't say I feel completely at home in that environment even now. And I don't cover teams on a daily basis, so I just kind of make targeted strikes if I need to talk to someone for an article or a book or whatever. I'll just go up there and find that player and then I'll leave. And no one really knows who I am. Definitely the players don't know who I am. Had you had much experience being in clubhouses, talking to players before you switched over to The Athletic? Not in this capacity mm-hmm. at all. <laughs> right. <laughs> so was that somewhat scary? I would imagine it would be. Okay. So the thing is, like, I'm an idiot and didn't really <laughs> anticipate like how much of a, yeah. a change this would be for me, which I know sounds extremely stupid. But... <laughs> You know, I was like, okay, reporting and writing is reporting and writing. And sure, the like variety and scale and nature of it is different. But at the end of the day, mm-hmm. you're doing the same thing. <laughs> okay, this is, it's 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 a whole new way of interacting yeah. with people and being around the same people all the time and trying to find different ways to finish stories. And so, yeah, it's 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 definitely been an adjustment. And I would say only recently I've started to feel settled in. And I think that's because I've, you know, been given the opportunity to go on a few more road mm. trips in the last month or six weeks like that. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've I've never really gotten to the point where I would walk into a clubhouse unless it was the Sonoma Stompers clubhouse where people would recognize <laughs> me and we would just have small talk. It's always kind of get down to business, whatever I'm talking to that player about. So you're covering two teams at the same time. So That's sort of an obstacle, I guess, in that you're not always on the road with either one, and so they're not seeing you every day. So Mm -hmm. has that hurt, and what tips or tricks have you picked up since the start of the season when it comes to getting players to say something interesting? I think I've really just had to figure out, in a sense, what most guys prefer. Going into spring training, I really had no idea what I was doing. And because it's spring training and there's just not really much of total consequence going on, I tried to make, you know, I I tried to make small talk kind of the basis of things. And some guys like, you know, they're they're so busy and especially on the New York beat, there's like 800 of us. Like some of these guys just don't need Mm -hmm. to make small talk. And so kind of figuring out who I have things in common with and especially... I feel like the dam has started to break a little bit for me with both clubs as I've, you know, finished some one-off stories. So I've had a little bit, I've had more conversations of like true relevance and and consequence with some people. Yeah. It's just kind of inherently an awkward situation unless you're there every day or maybe even if you are. I've been reading No Cheering in the Press Box, the old-timey sports writer oral history book, and (laughs) things were completely different in those days because the writers would be on the trains with the teams, they'd be playing cards, they'd be Mm -hmm. going drinking with them, and that affected the coverage in a lot of ways that weren't always great, but there just wasn't such a separation between those worlds, and they were kind of social friends in a way that we just aren't today. But when I walk into a clubhouse, it's not like I'm awed by the baseball players or their salaries or anything. It's just 
they're at their workplace, they're at their office, and my job is to go up and interrupt them, essentially, and I have a right to be there, too. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We all do, but it's still just kind of like being at a cocktail party where half the people are naked part of the time, and they don't really want to talk to you, and they're busy with something else, and if you do engage them, they might just kind of give you canned answers that aren't really helping anyone, so it's just, it's a tough sort of icebreaker type environment, I think. It really is, and like, you know, like, you and I or anyone else can do all of the research, all of the reading, all of the reporting in the world. And because we've never been there, we're still going to ask questions that are just (laughs) stupid because Uh we don't get it. But I think about it like, you know, unless I've, and I don't think I've gotten to this point with any players so far, but like, unless I have like a, an actual, just kind of friendly free flow of information, casual, how's your family, whatnot, back and forth, like I am going up to these guys and trying to find trying trying to poke at something kind of mm-hmm. in the dark like imagine if i went up to you and was just like oh i don't even know just without knowing someone it's really you just wind up asking them things that they may not find all that interesting and important about themselves and so mm-hmm. that's kind of been a thing that i've worked on is trying to find a way to kind of get guys to volunteer uh-huh. what they what they like, who they are, what they're into, instead of saying, hey, I read that you worked out with guy XYZ in the off season. Can you tell me yeah. about that? Because maybe they're like, I don't know. I met with that guy twice. Why does this matter? <laughs> like, why are there so many damn reporters <laughs> asking me about these like, you know, like inconsequential things mm-hmm. all the time? And so I try to really think like these guys who, even though I cover them, they were to come up to me and try to write a story about me, I I know it would be difficult on their end too. Yeah. And I'm often starting these conversations with guys where I just start reeling off information that I have about (laughs) them. And it's just kind of, it's almost creepy. It's like, you know, here is your swing rate on O2 counts or whatever. I try not to be too wonky, but often I'm looking for specific information about some thing that I've picked up about that player. And so you're coming in having researched this person. And I think some of them appreciate that, that you're coming in having done some work and looked information up so you're not just kind of casting about or looking for some narrative that you're hoping that they'll support. Yeah. But on the other hand, you're sort of lecturing them about what they're doing at times, which you you kind of have to be careful about sounding as if you are the authority on this player and you're you're telling them something that you've noticed about them. And I don't know, it's just, it's I'm always conscious as well of how many times has this guy been asked this question? And I'm Mm -hmm. hoping that I'm not writing an article that's been written a dozen times already, but it's almost inevitable that whatever you're asking about, this guy has probably heard before from someone. And so it's the first time for you, but this person has already had this conversation in some way. So I try to avoid that where I can, but there's no way to avoid it every time. Yeah, I... I was talking to a player who came over from a small market team once and I asked him something that I was kind of just curious about as as a theory mm-hmm. and he was like no I he was like that's a good question I can't say I've ever really thought about it you know it's really funny because there are so many of you guys 
trying to, you know, be competitive and do your jobs, but you guys look for so many small things that since coming here, I've had to think about my game kind of differently because you guys keep raising things to me that I hadn't even <laughs> yeah. thought of. And I was like, man, it was like, I was like that, um, that gif of Weebay from The Wire, <laughs> like just like totally blown away, like, oh, <laughs> <Yeah>. shit. <laughs> Because like these these guys, you know, there are there are the the Trevor Bowers of the world. There are guys who take a very scientific or even you know not in the case of Bauer, but may not have the physical gifts to just kind of play on instinct. Mm -hmm. But again, it's it's the same. Like if you came, if a player came to me and started breaking down the components of kind of my my work process, my my writing, my brainstorming, things like that, or or even the components of me taking taking care of my dog, I'd be like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. I just this is this is just something I've developed. And so I have had that moment where I bring some statistical quirk to a guy and I'm like, hey, you know, are you trying something mm -hmm. new? They're like, Well, if I had I don't <laughs> even think about this. Yeah. I'm like, okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah. I was talking to Rich Hill and Ross Stripling this weekend, and in each case, we were talking about a pivotal conversation that they had when they changed something, in Rich Hill's case with Brian Bannister in Boston, or in Stripling's case with Andrew Friedman, and I asked each of them, well, do you ever think about if you just hadn't been at that place at that time, if you'd been in a different organization, if you hadn't crossed paths with Bannister and Friedman, would you be here today? Would you be having this success? Would you be out of the game? And both of them said, huh, I never thought of that. And I don't know whether they're just humoring me and trying to make me think that I asked an original question when really they've gotten this question 10 times or whether they really don't think about it that way because to them, it's just their life. And it's kind of, you know, one day after another or one day at a time, as they always say. And for us, it's like mm -hmm. this story, this narrative that we're trying to craft. So you think about how it could have gone differently, but we don't always think about that when it comes to our own lives. Yeah, I mean, I think when you and I or anyone else is, when, when we're writing about these guys, we're trying to better showcase the impressively difficult work they do to fans and other people who do not have the privilege of simply going up to a guy and asking him why the hell he's <laughs> stopped using one specific pitch. Yeah. And I think they get it, but... <laughs> You know, the thing that I've found is I've tried to identify at least a couple people, usually players, who I can at least like ask dumb questions. <laughs> I would say that with the Yankees, Austin Romine is really good with humoring all of us and just being like, no, you guys, like, this is the deal. Uh -huh. You know, Jay Bruce is that guy for the Mets, like, understanding that in a, in a lot of cases, if they don't explain things to us, we can't write about them very well. And so I would say Jay Bruce and Austin Romine kind of act as mm, translators mm -hmm. from from their <laughs> from their position to ours. Yeah. yeah. And often the person who plays that role in a clubhouse will be like the backup catcher or, you know, yes. the last guy on the bench <laughs> or something. And you wonder why does this guy get quoted <laughs> so much? And it's because he has time to talk and he's willing to talk and he, he has time to think about this stuff. So we all go to those players. That's kind of how it works. But so do you find it limiting in terms of the stories that you can pursue? 
two compared to Deadspin, let's say, or is it freeing in certain ways? I mean, on the one hand, you are primarily covering these two teams, and so it's a little harder to write about league-wide stories unless you can find a way to apply it to these two teams. But Mm -hmm. on the other hand, you can write about the 25th man on the Mets roster Mm -hmm. at any point. And that's Mm -hmm. actually something you can get a story out of, whereas it wouldn't have been before. Yeah, I would say, I would say it's actually increased the range of what I feel like I can write. Uh Like last year, I (laughs) I had this very nerdy spreadsheet of the rates of three true outcomes per team Uh dating back like many, many years. And I was like tracking it and I was waiting for it to become like statistically significant. (laughs) And at that point, the Rays had some like unprecedented rate of three true outcomes. And Mm, I, I didn't have access to write any to talk to anyone with the organization about it. And so Mm -hmm. that kind of died on the vine, because while the Rays were emblematic of a, a big, large trend that definitely does translate, I would say to like a deadspin audience, it wasn't it wasn't something I could kind of finish. Mm-hmm. Whereas now, like I have a story that should run this week about a, a player just getting quicker into his arm slot. Mm. You know, he's he's not a particularly he's he's not a Cy Young guy, but something very particular has changed with his mechanics. And in Beat World, at least in mine, that is that is worth writing about. Mm-hmm. And so it's not everything has to be so so big picture because like I said we're trying to just help fans understand really what's 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 changed, what's working, what's not and so even if it's not it's not Jacob deGrom or Luis Severino, it's still a pitcher they're seeing every fifth day or every few days if they're a reliever. Mm-hmm. So I think it's I think it's actually it's actually made things a little bit easier in that way, yeah. which I was not expecting. So you're going back and forth between these two teams that just could not have <laughs> more different results right now or atmospheres surrounding them. And I know you're probably not rooting for either, except to the extent that you get stories out of it. So do you mm-hmm. get more stories out of the Yankees being good or the Mets being bad? And when you're covering one team or the other, are you thinking, oh, man, it's a, it's a Yankees series. I have all these good players to write about or, oh, it's a Mets series. Everyone's struggling. What doom and gloom am I going to write about today? Does it make a difference? I would say I would say there's you know a, a number of differences. I think with the Yankees, every single person on that roster is somebody. Mm-hmm. And it's very easy to write, you know, one-off examinations of of some particular element of a guy's game right. because that's fine. The team is winning other than being swept by the Rays this weekend, which everyone seems to think the season's over. But it just, it's easy. I think it's easier to write kind of about the components of the Yankees versus with the Mets I've found in recent weeks. And and I should say that I'm around the Yankees more than I am with the Mets, but the Mets, what people want to read right now is really only big picture chaos, unless it's about Jacob deGrom. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, and that was something that like really stood out to me this weekend because, you know, they're losing these games. It's, it's, it's total chaos, total anarchy. The Dodgers are a team that's also had a lot of injuries. Everyone is just at their breaking point. And 
after Saturday's loss, I asked Noah Syndergaard how his, you know, flat ground throwing had gone, and he said said it was fine. He said his finger felt fine. This is like a if if Degrom were not having the season he's having, like this is an ace who has been on the disabled list. Mm-hmm. I tweeted something like. Noah Syndergaard says he feels fine after throwing or whatever. A bunch of people were like, who cares? What about Sandy Alderson? What about the Wilpons? And I was like, Noah Syndergaard? People definitely care about whether or not Noah Syndergaard is on the road back back to throwing. And maybe that was just poor timing on my part, part or something. But I was like, I'm interested to know if this dude's finger is going to be a big problem in the long run. But it was a very... It was a very funny moment mm-hmm. that it was like, who cares about Noah Syndergaard? We need to focus on the state of the organization and how this validates everything I have said about this organization <laughs> for the past X amount of years. And so I'm realizing that there there needs to be larger pursuits and examinations with the Mets yeah. is the point I was getting to. <laughs> Having seen them both up close, do you detect differences in the ways that these organizations operate? I mean, the Mets have this reputation for being inept and handling injuries poorly. And meanwhile, it seems like everything the Yankees touch turns to gold right now. Do you sense that, whether it's in terms of injuries or just the messaging and the PR efforts? I mean, is there a real difference? Would you know that there was this giant gap in the perception and reputation of these two organizations? I would say, and I really tried to go in with a with a clear head, mm-hmm. I would say it's night and day. Huh. The way, even from even from the PR standpoint, the way that the Yankees do things, it's very regimented. Um, there is just an expectation that if you played a significant role in a game, you will you will talk to us. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't always have to say anything interesting, but you are accountable for your successes and your struggles. And I think that comes from top down, but I also think that comes from the veterans in the room. It's easy, I think, for the Yankees to be functional because they're good, because they have the resources and whatnot, but they manage to kind of keep their shit together. The Mets, by my understanding and by my quick and hasty interpretation as a person who is not yet fully plugged in, but has talked to people kind of on the inside, when things go go wrong with the Mets organization, they kind of turn against each other. Mm. And... I've been told there's just a huge amount of group think there are so many cooks in that kitchen. And I think I think it's very obvious. You see the things that are pushed out through the media. It's it can be obvious who's talking to whom and it really is as as chaotic as it seems. And I think, mm. like you said, every player of the Yankees touch turned to gold. Well, Mickey Calloway told us yesterday that Dominic Smith has never bunted in his professional career (laughs) (laughs) like i am i am not i am not a bunt happy person but the way things have gone with the mets best prospects has i think been a huge indictment of the the flow of information and proficiency from the top down Mm -hmm. it is it is very stark And so you're a rookie beat writer who's covering two rookie Mm -hmm. managers, and Mm -hmm. you wrote about Mickey Calloway and Aaron Boone a couple weeks ago. So what are your thoughts on how each of them is acclimating to this role? I think they just have very, very different jobs. I think Aaron Boone is, Boone is fun. He just has, he does have a really great 
long view perspective. I think there was obviously a lot of concern about bringing in an experienced guy in with these set of expectations, but I think he's he has kept a cool head. And I think Mickey Calloway and his coaching staff, they're just trying to find a way to win with what they're working with. Um, there have been a couple times where Callaway said, you know, when, when more players were injured or whatever, we are working with the guys we have. Or the other night saying that after Zach Wheeler gave up a grand slam in the sixth inning, they brought him back out for a seventh at like 102 pitches because they felt that he gave them the best opportunity to get through that inning. Mm-hmm. I think they were both very smart men who, I mean, there are, there are growing pains. Yeah. There are growing pains. I think it's it's been big for, for Mickey coming over and figuring out bench and bullpen management in-game. But mm-hmm. I don't think his mistakes are as consequential as they seem because the overall proficiency of the team is just not there. I guess I would say. Yeah. Well, and so you don't have one of the types of beat writing jobs where you have to be tweeting the lineup the second that goes up and, you know, necessarily writing stories about every single transaction and this guy's on the DL and this guy's activated. You can focus a little more on the bigger stories and take your time. But do you feel a pressure to develop connections and get scoops and report things that you know, go beyond talking to guys and drawing connections, but actually uncovering something. I mean, do you see that as part of your mandate in a way that maybe it wasn't before? I would say that I'm never, I'm probably never going to be a transactions person. (laughs) My, (laughs) my, my, my strength is in being, is in being thorough. And so I think when I write about someone in a feature perspective, it's very nice that at this company, I can take more time because I always, like clockwork, wind up trying to talk to seven too many people. And so I think as it pertains to digging into, you know, more, I guess, important stories, I suppose if if I were to take on the Mets front office dysfunction right now, I believe that I would try to dig very deep, but at the same time, I don't need to break the news of who's who's being optioned and who's coming up. Yeah, right. That's going to get out one way or another, <laughs> if even if it's just a team press release. So it seems a little less important. And so do you find that your Twitter mentions are much different now than they used to be, whether it's people who want you to just stick to tweeting about these two teams or one of these two teams or are just mad because of how the Mets season is going or whatever it is like has it changed obviously it's changed your tweets in that you're often tweeting about these two teams now but do you feel like it's changed your online persona and the response to it in some way I mean I do genuinely tweet about injuries a lot mm-hmm. <laughs> and I <laughs> I I tweet about who is doing something new in the lineup and some of my friends from Deadspin have texted me my own tweets and have been like, <laughs> you know, just mocking me for going, I guess, to an extent, full beat writer. But uh-huh. I would play by play so much. <laughs> I would say the uh, the big thing. This is this is maybe a, a plea to the people who follow me on Twitter. I will tweet something about the Mets 
and something going wrong. And then Mets fans will respond and be like, yeah, I can't believe that they can't win with Jacob deGrom pitches and this is really painful for me. And then a Yankees fan who follows me will jump in and be like, ha ha, send deGrom to the Yankees. Who cares? You guys are, you guys are worthless. Blah, 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 blah. The Mets don't even deserve to exist. And I'm like, you guys, like, you are both of my children and you are arguing and it is always Yankees fans picking on Mets fans and I just feel so bad and I'm like this is this is a this is a hazard of 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 covering both of these teams that as the Mets are heading toward train wreck territory it is just giving layup after layup to the smug Yankees fans who follow me <laughs> which yeah. is it's funny. Uh -huh. <laughs> Do you give any credence to the DeGrom trade rumors? Uh, I mean, I don't think he's going to the Yankees. Mm -hmm. They they couldn't figure out a, a deal with Neil Walker or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And have you found the beat writer fraternity? I guess at this point, it it, it is still mostly a fraternity. <laughs> Has it been welcoming? Do people kind of show you the ropes and say, welcome to the club? Or is there any kind of animosity there? Like, here's the new competition, <laughs> the athletic, they're coming for our jobs, that sort of thing? Um, I would say, at least to my face, everyone has been very nice. Mm -hmm. There are some people who I just don't interact with a lot, but there have been, you know, some people who I have gone to with questions. And I think with a lot of people on the beat, we attempt and we like to do different things. Mm -hmm. And also I am a rookie. They're not really intimidated by me uh -huh. and, and they shouldn't be. I would say it's, it's been good. I was, you know, I was concerned about that. I'm on the Yankees beat. I am the youngest, newest, and only female print <laughs> reporter for an American outlet there consistently. Wow. And and I'm not even there all the time, mm -hmm. you know, but I, I stand out in, in a lot of ways and trying to figure out whether I should just always go with black jeans and a gray shirt or <laughs> lean into who I am and wear Jordans with a dress. Like <laughs> things like that have been genuinely kind of weird to figure out. But I'd say it's good. No one's really told me to piss off, go to hell. I'm sure I've made some dumb mistakes and annoyed some people, but no one's ruined my life over it. <laughs> good. Well, I admire that you've hit the ground running doing this because it's a tough change to make, I think. And it's just, it's both baseball writing, but it's a very different type of writing and just everything surrounding the writing. You had to take Amtrak today. I didn't. <laughs> so even that, that is a, a hardship that that you have to handle that I do not. So <laughs> I'll be interested to see whether you are just a, a lifer on the beat and you're just a, a grizzled veteran in 20 years <laughs> who is still in clubhouses doing this or whether you burn out like a lot of people do because, you know, I guess it's not quite as demanding if you're not on the road all the time, but I don't know how people do it just being away constantly and living out of suitcases and taking flights all the time. It just seems extremely grueling in addition to just being at the ballpark as much as you are and the way in which it's become kind of a 24-7 job because of Twitter and breaking news and things happening at all hours of the day. So it has to be stressful in certain ways. So I guess congratulations on doing it as well. <laughs> 
well as <laughs> <Thank> you have. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm trying. If everyone could give me through the end of the season to figure it out, that's that's appreciated because like I said, I didn't really anticipate the adjustment. So Yeah. <laughs> who knows? Yeah. All right, so we will take a quick break and we'll be back in just a second with Jeff Heckelman, former director of business public relations for Major League Baseball. If it were up to the audience of this podcast, baseball would be the world's most popular sport and baseball players would be the world's most popular athletes. Unfortunately, it isn't and they aren't. Even though MLB has been blessed with a wave of talented and personable players, it still seems as if the sport and its stars are struggling to make an impression on the public, which leads to a lot of complaints that MLB is doing a bad job of marketing itself and its most marketable personalities. So our guest today, Jeff Heckelman, spent several years as one of the people responsible for marketing the league and last week he tweeted MLB could have 1,000 of the smartest marketing people on earth in its office and they still wouldn't be able to overcome the fundamental things about A, the sport and B, the players personally that stand in the way of making stars. So we wanted to have him on to talk about those things. So Jeff, welcome. Thank you for having me. Uh, you, you made it sound as if I was uh, being especially bleak about uh, baseball's prospects. <laughs> I, I apologize to the entire sport if it came off that way. Uh, if, if anything, the uh, the game is, is doing as well from a business standpoint as it ever has. So uh, uh, reports of its demise are greatly exaggerated and always have been. Yes, that's true. Well, we know that MLB is solely to blame for any failures that the sport is having, and you are solely to blame as someone who worked at MLB on this effort, so we hold you personally responsible. Absolutely. (laughs) Tell us what you did. You were at MLB for about six years, a little more than six years. You were the director of business public relations. What did that entail? Sure. So uh, so I joined the league in November of 2008, which... uh, it was about a week after the Phillies beat the Rays in the rain to win that World Series, and it was a couple of months before MLB Network went on the air. So, uh, just to, to to put that in historical context. So, uh, so yeah, so I was there for about six and a half years, as you said, and it was my job to uh, promote and publicize uh, the game and work with the media, specifically focused on. Uh, it was called business PR, but it was really everything off the field, everything from the business itself to community relations, international, entertainment, etc. cetera. Uh, the group that I was part of uh, worked on that. Uh, there were other PR folks and still are who do a fantastic job of working on the game itself on the field. So they work more closely with the baseball writers, uh, although I did interact with some of them from time to time uh, and deal with everything involving rules and discipline and, and, and the game itself and baseball operations. Uh, but my job uh, was, was business PR. Uh, so I worked with our national sponsors, the licensing department, which is merchandise, not just caps and jerseys, but really anything that has a logo on it, the marketing and advertising department, which I'm sure we'll talk more about, broadcasting, which meant I was... Uh, among our liaisons to Fox and ESPN and Turner, 
uh, for all the work they did, and I was also somewhat involved in social media. Obviously, the folks at MLB Advanced Media really owned that space uh, from a consumer fan standpoint, but uh, uh, I, as part of my role in the PR department, created that Twitter account that's MLB underscore PR uh, that was really designed to uh, communicate news and information that would be of interest to media, uh, although a ton of fans wound up following that as well. So yeah, my job was to work with the media that don't necessarily automatically come to the ballpark. So late night shows, morning shows, magazines, uh, business writers, all the people that you kind of need to call up and convince to, to come and cover uh, the, the sport or, uh, or do something about baseball. And yeah, just promote everything positive and do our best to mitigate or provide context around anything that was negative. So Jeff, the biggest topic of contention, I would say, around MLB's marketing of its players is obviously Mike Trout. I mean, even Brandon McCarthy jumped in the other day and was like, you know, why is there this you know, Hall of Fame talent, and all I will be able to tell my children about him is that he likes the weather. I've been around Trout. I've spoken with Trout. Um, I found him actually really engaging when he was talking about Shohei Otani, but, you know, I've kind of seen up close how tough it is to bring out more from Trout, and so I'm interested in if you can tell us about your efforts behind the scene to kind of make Trout into the superstar that he should be. Yeah, I, I mean, I I love Mike Trout. Mike Trout is awesome. He's amazing. He's he's everything that those of us who love the game uh, know that he is. Um, and, and you know what what sparked my little mini thread last week uh, wasn't really you know I hope it didn't come across as picking on Mike Trout. Uh, you know, it was really pointing out the kind of systemic issues that get in the way of, of marketing, you know, him or, or anybody else. You know, and it was really responding to this notion that you see uh, just this narrative that is formed, this, this, this quote-unquote MLB needs to market its players better, which for people like me who are on the inside is like nails on a chalkboard. It's along the lines of saying baseball is dying or, or people who say the MLB. Uh, it just, you know, we, we, we react in a visceral way uh, because, again, we were on the inside and, and, and we were doing it and we know all the things that, that stand in the way. So uh, I, I would say, you know, there's a couple of things. One, and, and you know, Lindsay, you alluded to this, you know, the, the, the player, you know, has to have, you know, not just, you know, the great personality, but also a willingness to participate in a lot of these things. And again, this is not to pick on Mike Trout. We experienced this with, with countless star players. But, you know, you could have all sorts of opportunities uh, to uh, to do either, uh, you know, national advertisements with sponsors, to do media interviews, to do extensive profiles, to do magazine things and photo shoots. And, you know, these opportunities do come along and, and people inside MLB headquarters make those opportunities happen. And very often, you know, sometimes the player just doesn't want to do them. Sometimes the, the schedule and reality of baseball simply doesn't allow it. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not going to sit here and say that football and basketball players have it easy, uh, but they do have many more off days uh, in between their games than, uh, than baseball players do. Uh, baseball really is a grind. It's every single day, and it's not just the three hours of the game. It's, you know, you know for an average 7 p.m. game, players are getting to the ballpark around 1 or 2. They have their routine of stretching and, and, and working out. 
They're, uh, they are talking to media. They're talking to the beat writers before and after games. And, uh, you know, uh, they'll have an off day maybe every two, three weeks. And on that one day, they want to rest, you know, or they want to do whatever else interests them. And so very often, you know, someone like myself would come up with opportunities that might, you know, qualify under that banner of quote unquote marketing players. And for whatever reason, uh, you know, it's very difficult to pull those things off during the season. Yeah, and I've talked to Trout too, and I was asking him about him as opposed to asking him about someone else. And so I had to work pretty hard to find a line that I could quote that was actually worth quoting. And he's not necessarily the most attention-seeking type, but even if you are and there are players out there who are maybe a little flashier in some ways or or seek that kind of publicity in a way that Trout doesn't. And even they, at this point in the post-Jeter, post-A-Rod era, there really aren't any baseball players who are national figures in the way that the biggest stars in other sports are. And that's not just because of Trout's personality or any other one guy's personality. It seems like it's because of some larger obstacles that have to do with the sport itself and the way its fandom is organized. So can you talk a little bit about just some of the institutional barriers here that are standing in the way of baseball players being big stars or baseball itself breaking through among younger viewers? Sure. I mean, first thing is is simply the, the game itself. And, and, and that meaning Mike Trout is you know, our LeBron James or our Tom Brady. But the fact is you could go to a game, you could bring your kids to a game and you, or you could watch Mike Trout play on TV and you could sit there for three hours and that might be the night that he goes over four and an hour might go by without a ball being hit to him in the outfield. And mm-hmm. as amazing as he is, he, he cannot, you know, dictate play every minute of the game. He, he, he can't directly affect everybody else around him. You know, the NBA finals just happened a few weeks ago and, and you watch 30 seconds don't go by without you seeing LeBron on TV or Steph Curry or Kevin Durant. They affect every single play. The ball is in their hands, uh, you know, within, you know, 10 seconds. Uh, of every play. And so it's just much easier for an individual to stand out in those sports. And also, you know, you, you look at the postseason, you know, the, in those sports, the star players uh, have a better likelihood of, of directly personally being able to kind of drag their team uh, to the postseason and, and have success in the postseason. You mentioned Derek Jeter. You know, aside from just playing in New York, he also had the benefit of being in the World Series four of his first five years mm-hmm. and that and performed well in, you know, I'm not going to take that away from him. He did perform well, uh, but he had that stage and he had those opportunities, whereas Mike Trout in in his five, six years has, has been in the playoffs once and he has one postseason hit and it was in the first round. You know, you know, there was nothing we could do sitting around a conference room table at MLB headquarters that could manufacture Trout versus Kershaw in the ninth inning of Game 7 of the World Series with the bases loaded and the game on the line. You just can't snap your fingers and make that happen as much as we would have loved for that moment to happen. Yeah, I think it's, I, I very much agree with what you say about how obviously Trout cannot 
drag the entire team by himself as we are uniquely seeing this year. <laughs> I also think, yeah, I mean, I very much agree with the, the market platform, but looking at someone like Aaron Judge, who has the benefit of playing for the Yankees, has the visibility benefit of being six foot eight, has kind of shown himself to have kind of a relatable young people personality, but Judge's thing is that he's a big, strong man, and he hits big, strong home runs. I think I think on its face, it's just, you know, when I think about when I was young, and the first time I really paid attention to baseball outside of watching A's and Giants games with my uncle was, you know, the 98 home run record chase, you know, it's I think an overall an all around guy like Mike Trout is more difficult to market than someone like Kershaw or Judge who kind of really operate at the extremes of one particular skill, which is not to say that, you know, Aaron is not an all around player, but there's a lot of bang and flash when he's there. And so I guess, Jeff, you know, I know that in the past, you and I have actually talked about trying to arrange specific things with players who have kind of made their their outside personalities more known. I think maybe we talked about something like going shopping with Carlos Correa or something like, <laughs> could you... I never really asked you kind of what the the brainstorming and you know idea building process is for for story ideas like that and how you kind of go about going beyond just this is what you need to know about Bryce Harper. Yeah, I mean that 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 was a lot of what I what I did at times our our, our entire department and by that I mean you know our business PR group as well as the the marketing team. I'm sure you guys both uh, remember the MLB Fan Cave. Uh, that that was a project that uh, that existed from 2011 to 2014 uh, that I was very involved in, and and that was that that was a lot of what the goal of, of of the Fan Cave was was kind of bringing out the personality of the players and 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 making them better known beyond. Uh, what they do on the field, and a lot of that was kind of exactly what you just said, Lindsay. It was it was our own, just putting our heads together. You know, maybe putting, maybe starting with a list of thirty, forty players who you know we knew were were the best players in the game or were poised to be the best players on the field that year, and then you start looking through that list and saying, well, well, what separate what you know what what makes any of these guys stand out uh you know from from the standpoint of their personality and then you know Mike Trout being a prime example i remember being part of that meeting the first time that anyone made the connection or pointed out hey he this guy really seems to be into weather uh and and i remember sitting around that room saying okay what can we do with that you know let's book him on the weather channel let's uh, you know uh, you know it was during the fan cave years so you know could we get him to be willing to you know do participate in kind of a fun viral video where he is a, a weathercaster actually i think we even had an idea for something where we were going to pull a prank on him and, and actually get the Weather Channel in on it and have him <laughs> under the impression that he was really going to get to to be on the Weather Channel as as, as a meteorologist oh, and that there was going to be some kind of some kind of thing where we pulled the wool out from under him. But again, you you need his time and cooperation and and uh, you know if anything, like you said, sometimes we in order to rise above or combat the, those issues about the, the schedule and, and all the other things on these guys' plates, we would it, try and tap into those things that interested them because, you know, our, our mindset was 
maybe Mike Trout wouldn't give us an hour to just do anything, but if involved the weather, maybe he would, you know. So, uh, so not only would those things allow us to show a different side of their personalities uh, and maybe kind of bring that out, but we also thought maybe it would make them more likely to uh, to play along and uh, and do things with us and and sure enough you know not not to keep picking on mike but uh, i remember that being an example where we just could never quite make it work you know either when he was in new york or we were willing to to send a crew to to him wherever he was uh to do it and it just you know for whatever reason never never came together but uh but yeah th- those are the types of meetings we would have and i'm sure they're still having to this day I think I should deal that shopping idea and try to apply it to Araldus Chapman, who comes in fairly often in white outfits from head to toe with big, high-level fashion sneakers. Maybe maybe I'll take a run at that. <laughs> so I think I was maybe one of the only people who regularly watched the MLB slash MTV2 classic crossover off the bat. I don't off know. The bat. <laughs> Jeff, I don't know whether you were involved in organizing that, but it was... Very much so. Yeah, Very, it was uh, uh, an unlikely mix of cultures and personalities. It was a show on MTV2 hosted by Sway and Fat Joe and Melanie Iglesias and Chris Stefano, some of the people from MTV's Guy Code and Girl Code, and yet it was a baseball show and it was executive produced by David Ortiz and it would have stars on coming to the fan cave and it was kind of this crossover that seems like the sort of thing that people always say baseball should be doing, right? They should be doing outreach to markets and viewers who may not already be interested in baseball and that's what this was and I don't know that it always worked all that well but it was it was definitely entertaining and I am guessing that it just didn't generate that great a response because it didn't last all that long but it was at least an attempt to do the sort of thing that people say that baseball should be doing absolutely and and look I, I was involved in every minute of that show and I'll be the first to say everything didn't land everything mm-hmm. didn't work but like you said we we were trying you know and uh, and I think part of part of what happened with that show if you you know it we got off to a rocky start because we were all figuring it out uh, as we went along it came to and that's not just from baseball standpoint from the 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 folks at MTV who were working on it as well uh we were kind of all in this together and we were patching things together from week to week based on which players we could get access to and what ideas everyone had and you know, that was definitely a case where by the time we got to the second half of the season, we started traveling a little bit more. We brought those guys to the, the playoffs and World Series. We did more uh, segments with fans, uh, especially, you know, around the playoff time. And and we really, you know, we were on to something. Uh, I, I think what happened, though, was those first couple of weeks when people were more likely to have given it a shot – you know, weren't necessarily our strongest episodes. And so, you know, a lot of that potential audience kind of wasn't there anymore for us when we really started hitting our stride. Mm-hmm. And and I think that the same would go for, I would say the same for the fan cave overall. Uh, I, I think it was a worthwhile experiment. I think we had some hits, we had some misses, but everyone who worked on that uh, knows in their hearts that we were on to something. We know that the, you know, we had the evidence that the average fan 
of the fan cave on social media was 20 years younger than the average baseball fan. We, you know, the players who participated all had a great time. They said good things about it. Uh, some of the teams got it and understood and were on board. Some, it took a little bit, you know, more, uh, more heavy lifting. Um, and then that really went for the entire sport and the industry and everybody around it. You know, if, uh, that was the kind of thing that if everyone, the teams, the players, broadcast partners, you know, BAM, uh, agents, you name it, if everybody had truly gotten behind it, uh, in a, in a big way, we might have uh, really accomplished something, you know. As it was, we we did the best we can we could with what we had to work with. I, like I said, I, I think we were onto something, and a lot of the things that we were trying to do back then are still things that they're trying to do now. They just call it something different. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. I think as a whole, the way the league has attempted different formats and kind of, I think, and I say this cautiously, I think the league has loosened up a little bit about the distribution of its product. I think, I know that they are still very aggressive with unauthorized social media video takedown and whatnot, but when I was at Deadspin, if there was a play I was writing about or something like that, and the MLD native video was not able to embed, I could just, you know, in my position, I could email someone and say, hey, I want to put this in my story. Can you provide me an HTML code? And they would do it. I don't think they're as liberal about it as the NBA, but this has been a big point of contention. And I think they have kind of figured out ways to make the the best parts of the game more accessible and digestible. Jeff, I know, I believe it's you who's had, who had, you know, back and forths with BAM and the commissioner's office. And I imagine with the changeover from Bud Selig to Rob Manfred, there was actually a big change in how the use of technology for that type of thing was perceived you know was am i kind of am i on the right track with that was there was there a noticeable change yeah and and look to, to be clear i left right as that transition was happening um but but from what i understand you know part of part of rob's uh, goals coming in as commissioner was to kind of break down uh, some of the silos that had formed uh where the league office and BAM and MLB Network really operated very independently uh, of one another. Uh, they still are in separate offices, at least for now. I know that they're, they're talking about moving uh, to one central uh, headquarter in Midtown in the next couple of years. Um, but even just functionally, uh, you know, and, and I know that, that a lot of that work has happened. I don't know if it's completely as seamless as, as they yet as they want it to be, but they did uh, do a lot to try and bring everybody together. In terms of, uh, you know, how they react to, to technology and, and, how, and their willingness to, to let, you know, clips uh, live online, I don't know that that necessarily was a, was a shift from Commissioner Seelig to uh, Commissioner Manfred. It's not, it's not like it was Bud who was deciding, no, I'm not going to let that spin, you know, have our HTML code, <laughs> you know. Uh, so. Bud Selig's ever heard of Deadspin? <laughs> or HTML oh, code no. or a GIF or oh. <laughs> email. I, I, that is I think satisfying it's, thought experiment. Yeah, I, I, I think it's possible that, that one of those times that, 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 that spin ran that photo collage of 
you know, all, all different photos of him from from various press conferences over the years. It's possible that that <laughs> might have made it made its way to him, uh, at which you know. But uh, but yeah, no. Uh, so so yeah, it, exactly. It's not like he was the one making those decisions uh, about things like that. Um, but uh, but under Rob, I think it's fair to say that there is is more of a of a willingness to either try things differently or just embrace you know different audiences and uh, you know but at the end of the day you know bam has their philosophy and 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 they do their best to uh, to stick to that i think their answer uh, and again i didn't work for them so i don't want to speak for them i i think their their answer was kind of like what you just said lindsay which is they'll they have an army of people who can move just as quickly as anybody on the internet to cut highlights and and post things online and and so their answer would just be just you know wait the extra 10 seconds and 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 we'll give it to you our way and they would just prefer that uh, that you use their version of it um, but i don't disagree with you that the nba in particular um has been much more liberal in their just kind of tacitly being okay with uh, with certain things happening online in a way that that baseball has been slower to, uh, to, to or, or at least been less willing to be that free. On the flip side, the NBA does not have a, a, a digital business the size of of BAM and didn't you know spin off BAM Tech to Disney and, and make a billion dollars. So there there are pros and cons to uh, to different approaches. Right. Online. That's the the perplexing thing in some ways is that MLB has been just the cutting edge, the forerunner of everything when it comes to technology development and streaming and the platforms and the ease of use and the availability of information. And so you'd like to think that that would translate to reaching people, but it doesn't always. And one other comparison you can make between baseball and basketball is that in basketball, you just get so much personality out of the players, whether it's on the court or on social media, that there just still seems to be some resistance to in baseball. There's kind of this cultural belief in button-down players and straight-laced players and not showing emotion, and we still hear about it constantly when someone looks too happy on the field and he gets drilled with a baseball because of it. Or, you know, very rarely do we see players really interacting in an entertaining way online. There was one exception earlier this year when Trevor Bauer started going after the Astros and Garrett Cole and their spin rates and whatever you think of Trevor Bauer or that whole controversy, it was kind of fun to actually see baseball having that sort of public drama for once because I think fans really get into that. So this again seems like something that's changing, but maybe not changing quickly enough for marketing purposes. I mean, I just want to say on the subject of Trevor Bauer, who my brain has automatically reclassified as Tyler Bauer already. <laughs> <Right>. Like <laughs> that was so satisfying. Yeah. Like baseball truly needs more drama. Mm-hmm. Like it needs more petty, yes. dumb bullshit. <laughs> more sniping. Like, that. Yeah. like <laughs> some of these guys are just way too professional. Like <laughs> just let loose and make public inconsequential mistakes like the rest of us, <laughs> in my opinion. And, and, and I guess, you know, I can speak for myself, but based on a bunch of friends of mine who are still there, I can tell you, if, if everyone at MLB headquarters listens to this podcast, and I hope they do, at least 100 heads are nodding right now, okay? I, I assure you guys, during my time there, and I'm sure to this day, that kind of stuff drove us crazy. 
And, and you're right, Ben, it, it's starting to change, but it's not happening quickly enough. And that's not something that is controlled at, at the major league level even. That is the minor leagues. It's little league. It's it's high school. It's, it's every every little coach on every little sand lot that, that, you know, grew up being told this is the right way to play the game and this is the wrong way to play the game. Just implanting that in every successive generation of kids and you know by the time the kid gets through that whole gauntlet of every coach and every teammate that is around him to the point that he actually gets to the major leagues you know you're lucky if every bit of personality hasn't been beaten out of him by then and then if you somehow manage to survive all that time and you're someone like a Bryce Harper or Puig or or whoever and you've somehow managed to make it to the major leagues and still hang on to your personality then you first are a victim of every single time you do anything to stick your neck out and draw any attention to yourself or show any kind of happiness or, or personality. You're getting a baseball to the head or you're getting a stern talking to behind the scenes by a coach or a manager or a GM or, or a, a, a veteran player in your clubhouse. And, I, and that's kind of what I was getting at last week. Uh, with my little mini thread on Twitter, you know, in terms of these systemic issues in the game, I think it's twofold. One is what we talked about before, just the idea that a Mike Trout, you know, can't impact every single play, every single minute. And the other is, is this culture inside the clubhouses. And I don't know what anyone can do about it, but the entire sport together just has to drag itself kicking and screaming into the future because, uh, it's just so frustrating when, you know, and, and this was something that affected us because sometimes we were the ones who, you know, we'd do a funny fan cave video or we'd, you know, sometimes we would tape those at the ballpark before games and, and sometimes we would have to do them earlier in the day because, you know, we had times when players, would say to us, okay, I'll do that, but I don't want to do it when all my other teammates are around, you know. <laughs> and then they'd have to, you know, deal with the with the fallout and uh, and get crap from people uh, after the fact. It was it's just very very frustrating. And and you know, again, you you look at those people inside, uh, you know, MLB headquarters. There's nothing they can do about that. You know, you can't just walk into clubhouses and you know. There's definitely a, a, a divide between the quote-unquote business side and baseball side, and that happens inside the league office, and then it also happens at the team level. You know, you have, even at the team level, you have marketing and PR people who might want to do different things, and they bump into the clubhouse culture themselves. It's, uh, I, I don't know the answer to that. If I did, you know, I, I'd be doing something else. <laughs> yeah, having been in the visitors' clubhouse at City Field this weekend, just in time to watch the closing minutes of the Germany-Sweden World Cup game with Yasiel Puig right next to me, that should be a show because I think Puig not only would have made me a baseball fan, but just would have made me a soccer fan watching World Cup with Yasiel Puig. That would be a smash hit if that could somehow be bottled, I think. Uh, I and whether he's late for a game every now and then or you know reacts the wrong way after he hits a ball or whatever it is, I, you can't really replace the kind of enthusiasm that he has. Quick, yes. I mean, I, I don't remember what year it was, maybe... 2013, 24, whatever his, I think it was his rookie year. Um, he came to the fan cave one day uh, while the Dodgers were in town. I think it was his rookie year. We didn't know he was coming until about a half hour before. We didn't have a plan for a video to shoot with him. We did, you know, usually you'd have a week, we'd, we'd 
talk about the player's personality and 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 come up with something you know somewhat scripted you know at least a setting we didn't have any of that he just came to the fan cave and we gave him a tour and he played ping pong and he played he danced and he and he just did yasiel puig things and just that that minute and a half package of here's yasiel puig having fun at the fan cave was one yeah. of our most successful videos of the year he didn't even have to do anything except just be himself and you know, I remember sitting there that day saying, man, if we could have 50 more of this guy, we wouldn't even need to do anything. Yeah, I think in general, I think athletes watching sports, but especially baseball players watching other sports is just, it's it's fun and it's great. And it's just such a nice reminder. Like I did a story in spring training with Yankees reliever, Tommy Canely, who is just a Philadelphia Eagles super fan. And it's just, it's so fun to see their competitiveness and love of sports or games. If it's something like ping pong, you know, just be represented in such a different way. And so when there is like a, a Puig watching the World Cup or the Yankees clubhouse watching the NBA finals thing, it's just, it it kind of, to me, it kind of brings back the purity of what this stupid thing we're all obsessed with is about. <laughs> Yeah. And, and, and I, I agree. And, you know, there were times when, when we observed things like that or we knew that something like that was going to happen. And, you know, look, sometimes it was, you know, a team or a group of players not being comfortable, you know, with us bringing cameras into the clubhouse or, or, or something like that. But a lot of times it's just general risk aversion, you know, and, and it's not anybody's fault. You know, I mean, this is the, the, the media world that we're living in nowadays where everybody has a, a camera and guys have gotten burned, you know, or had things taken out of context. It just makes it so that it's much, much easier to say no. Uh, you know, uh, uh, people are asking you know, the, the top 50 players in Major League Baseball to do things for them every single day. You know, every day the team PR guy has to walk up to him and ask him to do this, that, or the other thing. He's got the community relations people, the marketing people, his own agent, friends, family. You know, everybody's got their hand out. Everybody's asking them to do things. And it's much easier uh, for them to say no because to, to not do it means that they can't get burned, you know. Uh, and, and even within baseball, you know, I mentioned before about kind of all of the, the, the baseball industry being on the same page, these were some of the things where we were even fighting with ourselves sometimes, where a team would come to New York one time, and it wasn't just us reaching out to the agent or the team PR guy for the fan cave. You'd also have MLB Network and, and, and BAM reaching out to them for their things. You'd have MLB, MLB Productions maybe needing some access with them uh, for something. And then in my role as a PR guy, sometimes I was asking for the fan cave, but sometimes I would have an opportunity with the Rolling Stone or a GQ or a BuzzFeed or, or whoever. And so you're a Mike Trout. Maybe you're willing to spend one hour while you're in New York doing one thing, but that means that 10 other things all are no's. And, uh, and it's unfortunate, but it is what it is. So I don't know whether you've been privy to some of the research that Rob Manfred has cited about what makes people baseball fans, that it's going to games early in life that cements that love of the sport, or maybe it's high-scoring games is popular among fans. Have you seen those sorts of surveys, and do you have a sense of is there a window, is there a formative period where you have to reach someone or else they're lost to you for life? Yeah, I, I've seen some of that, and I've heard Rob talk about 
about the importance of going to games when you're young, and I and I don't disagree with them. I, I don't think that there's any one thing that is that is kind of the magic bullet that this is the thing that needs to happen at a at a specific age. Um, but I do think you know generally people form their attachments to things uh, at a somewhat early age. You know, I, I know for me, I. I grew up, I'm 38 years old, so when I was six years old was 1986, growing up on Long Island. The, the, the Mets were in the World Series that year, won it in remarkable fashion. Uh, that was the year that my grandfather decided to teach me baseball. You know, he, he was a Brooklyn Dodgers fan, so he raised me first and foremost to hate the Yankees. And then it just so happened that the Mets were doing what the Mets did that year. And so I fell in love and, and I, I said, this is great. Uh, you follow a team and then they come from behind and win the World Series in miraculous fashion. And that's just what happens. And, you know, 32 years later, I'm still waiting for that to happen again. Um, but yeah, you know, I was six and that was that, 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 that's, you know, kind of when you become a, a fan. But I don't think that, you know, and I don't, and I think Rob would agree just because you go to a game when you're six and just because, you know, uh, you like the game then doesn't mean that you're going to change your mind when you're 18 or 25 or 35. You know, you still need to, uh, have the sport be something that is appealing to people, uh, at every step along the way. Yeah, I agree with that. I would say I was kind of a late bloomer, but I think that's, I mean, I don't know what the league's research might have turned up about the last few years of the postseason, but having the Cubs win, having the Royals win, having the Indians go, having the Mets go, like that is, that was to me something that was genuinely exciting because I think if you go to a game as a kid, if you go to uh, let's say if you go to a Royals game as a kid, maybe there's a period of 10 years where you don't really adhere to those like family traditions or whatever. But as soon as the improbable happens, you start to get sucked back in. So I don't know that I necessarily believe that that's kind of a requisite. I, I do believe when they say that maybe that there's a correlation to lifelong fandom. But um, yeah, I, I think that's I think that's interesting, and I think it's interesting that they're kind of trying to quantify these things, but I don't know that that's really possible. Yeah, and, and look, I, I'm going to preface all, I should have said it right at the outset, you know, baseball's fine, you know, you know, uh, the reports of its demise are greatly exaggerated. It's actually one of my favorite stories I ever worked on during my time at baseball was a piece uh, written by Brian Curtis, uh, uh, your, your colleague Ben, uh, when he was at Grantland. Yes. I think it was called something like Baseball's Dying Century. It actually was a year in the making. Uh, I had dinner with John Thorne, who's the historian for baseball, who's just a wonderful, brilliant guy. Uh, and, I, and I was kind of commiserating with him about the, the challenges of dealing with the quote-unquote baseball's dying crowd during the World Series, citing TV ratings, comparing them to 1980 when there were three channels, uh, and, and saying, why aren't 50 million people watching the World Series like they did when it was just that or MASH? Um, but anyway, John looked at me and a little twinkle in his eye and said, you know, if you'd like, when I get home, I'd be happy to send you some newspaper clippings dating back to the 1850s proclaiming the death of baseball. Yeah. Uh, and it was true. He, he, he unloaded all this stuff on me and he had 
There was a quote from a player in 1858, so this was 18 years before the advent of professional baseball, saying something like, baseball is a fine game, but they simply don't play it like, like they did in my day. <laughs> right. you know, and then all the way through to in the 1870s, 1880s, people saying, you know, uh, now that they're paying players as much as $10 a, a season, uh, you know, uh, people will lose interest. Then yeah. it was the advent of the bicycle and the talking pictures and the war and you name it. Every single decade, there was something, some reason why baseball was going to uh, was going to not be popular anymore, and, and and here we are. So yeah, I don't know where I was going with that, but that just needed to be said. Uh, baseball is doing now. That said, it's not a simple black and white thing. Just because baseball isn't dying, and just because the game is doing as well, kind of you know, off the field from a business standpoint as it ever has before, doesn't mean there aren't things that need to uh, to, to change. And and I think. Uh, you know, first among them, and, and I know that this is a priority of everyone inside the league office, is, is, is pace of play and all the things that, that I know you guys talk about all the time. I mean, I love baseball. Uh, I will always love baseball. It is not easy to sit through uh, an average Tuesday night game in, in June between two teams that aren't necessarily in it. I mean, something, you know, something could always happen. There could always be a no-hitter. It could always be an amazing, uh, you know, play. Uh, we all know, you know, what baseball is. But, man, when there's 45 seconds between every pitch and, you know, a half hour goes by, you know, without a ball being hit in play, it, it can be tough. And, and again, that, that's, that's the other thing I meant when I said it could be a thousand smart marketing people. And at the end of the day, if, if, if that is still the case, short of playoff time, it, it can be challenging now that, you know, we have the attention spans that we have and we have the options that we have. Uh, it just makes it all the more important to make sure that if you are exposing someone to baseball, that they're getting the best version of baseball that it can be uh, during that formative moment. Right. And attendance is down five and a half percent this year. So now baseball is really dying. This time it's for real. But yeah, I think every generation thinks baseball is dying and obviously it hasn't died. And in many ways, it's healthier than it's ever been. On the other hand, it has a lot more competition. And so it doesn't have the share of the market that it once did, even when it was relatively small business compared to today. So I wanted to ask, I know that you probably don't want to be a, a backseat driver because you probably probably got sick of people offering their own opinions on what baseball should be doing differently when you were part of baseball. But I think we've established that it's probably the case that there's not going to be some Don Draper equivalent who's going to come in and think up the perfect tagline. And it's just going to be this campaign that manages to penetrate through all the distractions and brings baseball to everyone. It's probably not that simple. But Based on your experience, was there anything that worked really well or worked really terribly or something you wanted to do and didn't get a chance to do or think that would work but hasn't really been tried? Any general advice for how things could be improved even given all of the problems that we've discussed? Yeah, I, I mean, again, the, the, like you say, there is no magic answer to this. Uh, when I think back on the things that worked especially well, and I think I alluded to this earlier, it was the times when the entire industry and everybody involved in the inside were all on the same page. And, and you know, one example of that that I could think back on were the first couple of years 
that we had uh, the players during the home run derby uh, using social media uh, from on the field when when they were you know just kind of hanging out there. That was something. I mean, I cannot begin to describe to you what an uphill battle that was getting that approved by the players association and the and the TV networks and just the agents and just everybody involved there's always a reason to say no there was always the possibility and, and again this was i think 2011 or maybe 2012 uh was the first year we did this uh you know so it was still the early days ish of social media so there was a lot of fear there was a lot of unknowns there was a lot of well what if this happens what if that happens and you just needed to overcome it. And, and, you know, I was one of the people who was, who was down there on the field with laptops, you know, helping players, uh, you know, uh, do it. I remember the first year they could only do it on our laptops by logging into their uh, Twitter account. They could, we still couldn't let them have their phones on the field. But again, once we decided we were going to do it, you know, the league office, the broadcast partner, the teams, the players, the agents, Everybody, the Players Association, everybody wanting it to be a success and having their own kind of stake in it, that made it work ultimately. And I think there are too, too often all of those entities uh, either have competing interests or aren't necessarily completely aligned. And again, that's not the kind of thing that someone like Rob or anybody in the marketing department can just snap their fingers and make happen. It's something that you need to work at uh, over time, and it's something that we tried to do all the time, and I know that they continue to do. But in my opinion, the times when something works uh, in baseball are the times when everybody who has a stake in the game cares about the same thing at the same time and, and all kind of put their collective weight behind the same thing being a success. Yeah, it's funny. You want that dose of the player's personality on the field. I mean, last week or whenever it was that the Terry Collins, Tom Hallian video came out, that went viral in a way that I don't know if any actual baseball play has this season. And that was leaked. It wasn't supposed to be public. And so you don't want something that was not intended to be public becoming public. But at the same time, that's kind of show what people want. And the problem is maybe that if you did have people mic'd up and they know that they're mic'd up and that it's going to be out there, they're not going to say anything entertaining. It's going to turn into one of those mid-game in-dugout interviews where, you know, maybe some people like it, but mostly it's just kind of the same old cliches that you hear, except it's in the middle of the game instead of after the game. So I guess there's no way around that. You're just always going to have people watching their words if they know that someone's listening. And that's that on. I mean, you had Doug on last week, uh, the former umpire, to right. uh, to talk about that. And 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 like you know, it, it came out last week. That was obviously something that was collectively bargained with the umpires' union. And I know from you know, I wasn't part of those discussions or or really any collective bargaining. But I know from being behind the scenes that that is definitely the case with any time you want to mic anybody up there are so many guarantees made that absolutely nothing will slip through and make its way onto the broadcast let, let alone anything beyond what made its way into the broadcast even what 
what ESPN is or Fox or whoever is allowed to to air mm-hmm. on television. Uh, you know, there's a reason why you don't hear that sound live. You hear it coming back from a commercial because they've spent the three minutes, uh, you know, vetting it to <laughs> all the people that need to say, okay, you're allowed to to put that on the air. And you're right. right. If 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 all of a sudden, you know, they, it wouldn't happen this way. But if all of a sudden Rob Manford decided to snap his fingers and say, that's it, no more of that. We're let if we mic you up, we're letting anything fly. Then no one would agree to mic up, and if they did, they would never say anything. So mm-hmm. the the, the it's it's true. The, there's I I agree. I love that Terry video. I think everybody in that video came out of it looking better, and it was one of the most enjoyable clips that the that that any of us have seen all year. But I absolutely understand that that from everyone's perspective, it's about the precedent and it's about, well, you know, what what happens when there's another clip that doesn't make everybody look good. And again, there's always it's it's much easier to say no. And and so right. unfortunately, that's what uh, people do too often. Yeah. <laughs> another clip in the same genre from spring training where Mookie Betts was mic'd up in the middle of a game and he was talking to the broadcasters and a ball was hit over his head and he said, I ain't getting this one, boys. And he just started yeah, running. That was great. Yeah, I'd like more of that. I don't know how we get to that point because that's a spring training game. It doesn't matter. So you're not going to have players doing that in the middle of a game Mm -hmm. that does matter. But in our ideal world, that would somehow happen. (laughs) So from 2008 to 2015, it was your fault that MLB was not marketing (laughs) itself better. Mine and mine alone. (laughs) Yes. So why did you decide to move on and what are you doing now? Oh well, so I, I left uh, as part of that transition that uh, that that we talked about earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. I left during spring training, 2015. So there were probably all told maybe about a hundred of us or so between uh, the league office, MLB Productions uh, got hit particularly hard. There there were just a a bunch of groups as part of that effort to bring the the three offices together, the league office and BAM uh, and the network. Um, uh, you know, a bunch of us uh, moved on. So I I, I decided to take a step back uh kind of you know wait until something felt right and uh and branch out if i could so uh so what i'm i'm working at a at a, a company called finsbury which is a, a strategic communications firm a pr firm um, they're not really known for doing much in the sports world but uh but we are doing uh do, doing uh, you know, have multiple clients uh, touching the sports world but uh but finsbury's bread and butter is Corporate reputation, corporate crisis, uh, financial communications. Uh, so it's much more behind the scenes, much more strategy, just generally helping companies be smarter about how they communicate, both with the media, with their customers, uh, with their own employees, with investors, et cetera. Uh, and like I said, to, to, you know, we do have multiple clients in the sports world. So we're doing that type of work uh, for them. So it's been interesting, a little change of pace. Uh, I do still interact with uh, the media, but much less than I did uh, during my time at baseball. I get to kind of pick my spots a little bit more. And uh, again, the work I'm doing is a little bit more uh, behind the scenes uh, and strategic than, uh, than it was at baseball, but uh, uh, no less enjoyable. All right. Well, we appreciate you picking this spot and you can all follow Jeff Heckelman on Twitter at his name, Jeff Heckelman. Feel free to direct your complaints about MLB to him, although he is no longer responsible and perhaps no one is really responsible. It's just the the world is responsible and the sport itself. So Jeff, thanks for coming on and sharing some insight. Bye, Jeff. Thanks for having me. This was great. Yeah. Thanks, Lindsay.
Thanks, Ben. So, Lindsay, I've got to let you go. You probably have to get to the clubhouse, and (laughs) the clubhouse in Philadelphia and Citizens Bank Park is very far away from civilization, as I recall. So good luck. Enjoy the series, and good luck with the continued beat writing. Thank you, Ben. See you around. Yes, I'm sure I will. And (laughs) you can find Lindsay on Twitter at her name, Lindsay Adler. That's Lindsay with an E, and you can read her at The Athletic. All right, that will do it for today. Thanks very much to Lindsay for filling in and to Jeff for coming on. The other Jeff, we hope, will make a quick recovery and be back in time for our next episode. You can support this podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already gone there and signed up and pledged some small monthly amount. Sean Gobby, Burke Adams, Travis Ingram, Kyle Lewis, and Isaac Stevenson. Thanks to all of you. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild, and you can rate and review and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes, as well as most other podcast services. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing assistance. Please keep your questions and comments for me and Jeff coming via email at podcast.fangraphs.com or via the Patreon messaging system if you're a supporter. We'll be back soon. Talk to you then. Please.